So Valerie Jarrett was the longest serving senior advisor in the Obama administration. She was also close friends and mentor to both Michelle and Barack Obama and basically my hero and a lot of people's heroes. She was the director of the Office of Public Engagement and Intergovernmental Affairs and she came to Manny's and we had this really inspirational, hopeful conversation about the future, about the Obamas and what they brought to America and her own personal story, which frankly had a lot of tragedy involved. Did you think she was gonna get it and you saw things that Worried you? Was did you feel like this was? Did you feel like this was going to happen, or did it take you I by surprise? I was surprised that she uh, pulled out so as as at this point in time. I thought she would make it through at least through the Iowa caucuses. So I was taken by surprise today. But look, everybody has to do their own gut check. Money is an issue. Staffing is an issue. Uh, there've been uh, you know reports in the press lately about the tumultuousness of it. Every single campaign has a little bit of that. So, so as I said, look, I think we should celebrate the fact that she's still in the Senate. She is going to be awesome. Yes, yes. We need her there, actually, particularly right now. She's going to make a big impact, I think, in the rest of this term. And so uh, her day job is a pretty good job. But, you know, right? You could do worse than being a U.S. senator. But that doesn't mean it's not a very hard day for her and for her family. So... I wanted to ask you that to get it out of the way. And the way I thought I would do this was actually, um, so I read your book and there were- It's a good start. It's a, yeah, I did do that, I did my homework. Um, I did know a fair amount of your story already, but I really, really enjoyed reading the book. Um, and so I kind of wanted to take us through the journey of the book a little bit. Um, and I'm gonna ask you some unexpected questions, maybe, maybe not. Um, but I've already cleared with you that that's okay. But I didn't. I didn't tell her any of the questions. So none of them. He's the first moderator who has not even given me a hint. I refuse. Which must mean I trust you, and I don't even know you that well. Well, your your team asked me, and I said no. Oh, did they ask? They, yeah, I'm I refused. not surprised they asked. Yeah, that's okay. Um, not in like a belligerent, like I'm too important to tell you way, but in a I don't actually know yet. <laughs> That's so, much more honest. That, okay. It's true. I was like, I'm not going to send you questions because I don't have them. Um, <laughs> I want to talk to you first about race. Because you talk about your... Race like elections or race like color? Well, we're going to get to that, <laughs> but race like color. Um, because you talk a lot in the beginning of the book about your race and passing as white. Um, you talk about pretty hair. Uh, and you talk specifically, and this is what struck out to me, about going from Iran at age four or five, and then going to your school uh, in Chicago and people making fun of you because you passed as white. Can you talk a little bit about that? Okay, so you confused a few things. So he okay. read it, but maybe not quite that close. No, I did read it. Okay, all right, so let me give you the history for those of you who haven't read the book yet. So um, I was born in Shiraz, Iran. You might ask yourself why. Uh, so my dad, who was a physician, uh, grew up in Washington, D.C., during Jim Crow era. My mother grew up in Chicago, Illinois, same thing. Uh, he was um, finished high school at 16, finished college at 19, a superstar, went to the Army after he finished his residency. And when he was leaving the Army, he was looking for a job at a major academic teaching hospital in the United States so he could do research that he wanted to do. And don't you know he could not find a job uh, comparable to his white counterparts. And this would be in the year um, late 54, early 55, 1955. And so he and my mom, who were a little crazy, decided to look for opportunities outside of the United States. 
And he landed a job offer to help start a brand new hospital in Shiraz, Iran. This is a time when the United States had far stronger diplomatic relationships with Iran than it has today. And in fact, their Department of Health was recruiting physicians from all over the world to come and help start up hospitals and work hand in glove with the Iranian physicians. And they also offered him chair of the Department of Pathology, uh, a job that just simply wasn't available to him in his own country. And so he and my mother, against the advice of their parents, decided to go to Iran. I was the second baby born in the hospital. They practiced on some other baby first. Uh, I was not sure what happened there, but I was then born and we lived there till I was five. Then he did research at the hospital. I'm not gonna bore you about fava bean research, but if there are any physicians in the room, my dad did some actual groundbreaking research on fava beans. And it caught the attention of some folks at the Galton Lab at University College of London. And so my parents started to get a little homesick after five years. They'd been there six years in Iran. And so he took a, my dad took a one-year fellowship in London. And then he gave a paper about his fava bean research at some international conference. And the dean of the University of Chicago Medical Center was at the conference and offered him a job offer. And University of Chicago is in the neighborhood where my grandmother and my mother's sister and our huge extended family all lived. And so my dad often said to me that sometimes the shortest distance to where you really want to go means you have to be prepared to take the long way around. Well, he went all the way across the world, so you don't always have to go that far, but you do have to be prepared to you know, be flexible to answer his question, which I have not forgotten. Um, which apparently was based on false information. Well, you'll see. So, so I, my parents plopped me down in a public school in our neighborhood. Now, they're going back home. They're very excited about going back home. I am going to a foreign country. My home was where I lived, where the weather was warm all the time, and I lived in a hospital compound with kids from all over the world, and I was very happy where I was. I was not happy in London. It was cold. And I certainly wasn't happy in Chicago. But everybody else around me felt this sense of community. And I, here I am, I'm light-skinned, I had red hair and freckles, this public school is predominantly African-American, and I, um, I'd gone to really good schools both in Iran and London, so I'm five years old and they put me in second grade, so I'm two years ahead of myself. I used to get beat up every single day after school. So I was not passing as white, I just looked like I was. And uh, my cousin, who was younger than I, 10 pounds lighter, six, six months younger, would have to come to my rescue, it's humiliating all the time, and come to my, and pull the bullies off of me. And what happened was I stopped talking about being born in Iran. I had picked up a British accent, it only takes one year in Great Britain to become, to have a British accent. I lost that like the first day, I stopped speaking Farsi the second day, and I stopped telling anyone where I was born because no one had ever heard of Iran. And by the time they had heard of Iran, it was during President Carter's time in office, and we had the hostage crisis, and so they hadn't heard anything good about Iran, and let's face it, it's gone downhill since then. So I kind of clammed up on that. So I didn't really get to your That's okay. colorism issue, That's but, okay. but I was getting beat up by black kids who thought I was too light-skinned. And so that was, that's really what the message was. I wasn't trying to pretend I was white. They just didn't like the way I looked. There was one piece of that, that portion of the book, too, that there was one line that you used that really struck me, and I just wanted to say it and then maybe have you respond to it, which was, that your great-great-great-grandfather owned your great-great-great-grandmother initially. That would be true. And that was the way you framed it, and I'm sure it was purposeful, and it was probably to remind folks 
You could have, you know, instead of saying my great-great-great-grandmother was a slave, you said that your great-great-great-grandfather owned your great-great-great-grandmother. And yes. that really struck me. It was and his very children. powerful. And his children. And his children. And his, his son was freed um, after the Civil War. And even while he was enslaved, working for his father slash slave master, he was allowed to earn some money and the privilege that was given to him by his slave master father. But then he was freed and he saved up enough money in 1888 to send his son to MIT, first African-American to go to MIT. So wow. from slavery to MIT, and I wow. wonder, like, what was, how did he know, how did he even heard of MIT, and how did he know that it would be important for his son to get this education? And I often think about, like, what was that train ride from Wilmington, North Carolina, to Boston like for my great-grandfather? And, and, you know, how was he treated when he got there by a bunch of students who'd probably never been around a black person before unless they were domestically working in their home? And so... It's an interesting, it shows the arc of really in a relatively short period of time, what can happen. It was really inspiring to read that portion of it. I had never known that part of your history. Um, we're gonna fast forward to a topic that San Franciscans love to talk about, which is San Francisco. <laughs> and I'm gonna, we love to talk about ourselves. And yes. so I want, so it's, it, you've graduated from Stanford, you partied too hard before the GMAT, so you decided not to take the GMAT, everyone. I slept so through you them. Can, you I can, slept through them. Let's call it you what can, it was. You can party too hard before the GMAT and decide not to take it and still be super successful. I wish I had gone to business school, too. Really? Yes. I'm gonna take you to. I'm going to take you to UC Hastings. You're hanging out with your friend, Julie. Gwen, but close enough, close enough. Gwen, I wrote it here, Gwen. And um, (laughs) you like see how she's just like, Hastings is awesome. You should become a lawyer. And you're basically like, sure. Yeah, you're like, okay. She's two years older than I am. She never led me wrong before, so steered me wrong. So So I thought, okay, I'll go to law school. Where'd you hang out when you were in San Francisco in 1990? Who knows? You know where we used to go? Giordano Square. Is that still here? It's here. Is it still here? People that was like the people cool People don't place. hang out there. It was brand new back then. I mean, literally, it was brand new. Texans and hang so out there. And so I would go. They used to have, like, you know, a, we buy ice cream sundaes. That's what I would just drive up from Stanford. We would go do that. That's cute. Yeah, I, I love that. That's all I really remember. It was a while ago. Okay, so page 38. Okay, now we're going to start reading. So we're looking No, no, we're not. I'm actually going to read for you. And then, but I'm going to have you read something, too. But this part, actually, maybe I'm going to have you read the checklist. The original checklist. So, yeah, you want to tell... Yeah, you can read your own checklist. I can can read... All right, well, so let me give you some context for this. So, everybody at Stanford, I felt, had a plan. They knew what they wanted to do. And I literally was just kind of like meandering. First, I was pre-med, and then my boyfriend, who was in medical school, took me to his anatomy class. The same semester, I took organic chemistry. Well, that was the end of that. Uh, Manny already told you about me sleeping through the GMATs. And... Gwen said, go to law school, fine. So, but I thought, I need a plan. Everybody has a plan. So this, was, so this is what I came up with. <clears throat> with my grad school decision made, I decided that it was time for me to stop moving aimlessly through life, that what I needed was a sense of order and direction, a linear path. So one evening, I made myself a checklist of the goals I wanted to accomplish in the next 10 years. My plan was this, graduate from Stanford, graduate from Michigan Law School, discover my career passion, fall in love and marry, have a baby, and be fulfilled, satisfied, and happily, a happy wife and a working mom. <sighs> I convinced, 
I was convinced that if I could just have the discipline and self-control to accomplish items one through five, then I'd be able to check off item number six. And so off I went. And so, should I summarize what actually happened? Um, no, actually, because no. we're gonna go, we're gonna get there, and okay. and we're gonna get there through someone that I was afraid to talk to you about. But I have so many feelings about Bobby. Oh, Bobby was my husband. I can I? I'm not gonna be that mean about him, but to, I'm just gonna tell people a little bit of some of the things that he did to you. Oh. He. Okay, so you didn't cry at the wedding, and you said that you <laughs> that always, you were a big crier, and that was a big sign. When he says the wedding, my wedding. Oh, your wedding with Bobby? <laughs> yeah, I didn't cry, and that, I really that was the sign. didn't like Bobby. Um, he, you, he blocked your sunset during the honeymoon in St. Croix. Yeah, he did. Which, but that's kind of on me, don't you think? I was like, he, I love sunsets. Any of you like sunsets? Now I like sunrises, and I think that's a station in life. I'm looking forward to the new day rather than the end of the day. But back when I loved sun, sunsets... He was, we were running, rushing down to the beach to see the sunset, and he was out in the water, just as the sun was going down, and he like got in the way of the sunset, and I was, and that was a sign too, because shouldn't I have rather looked at him than the sunset? Right. Yeah, it's a bad sign. I On the honeymoon, that's a bad sign. I wasn't going to mention this, but you put it in the book, The Lingerie. Well, so I put on some lingerie in the hopes that maybe, maybe, just maybe, he might pay attention to me. And he didn't even give you any attention. You got the lingerie. You did the whole lingerie thing. Didn't work. 6 a.m. in Egypt, the sunrise. He left you alone in the. You you were you were pregnant. I was. You were pregnant. It was your last trip before you're gonna have a baby, and you guys go to Egypt, and that he left you alone in the hotel room, went to go watch the sunrise on his own. He accepted a residency without consulting you that was going to take you out of where you were living after they had just had a baby. This is Valerie Jarrett. Does he know who he's married to? He didn't show up on your 30th birthday. He didn't even show up. He sent you some bunk. He sent you some bunk flower arrangement that was shitty. that were colored like green and red. You ended up getting drunk and just going to sleep at like 9 o'clock. Yeah. Fuck him. <laughs> That's all I have. Okay, but then... Enough said about Bobby. Enough said about Bobby. But the reason I bring up Bobby, and this is, we're getting into the, the list, is you said that that relationship, which ended up, you ended up divorcing each other, um, it made you stronger. It made you a stronger person. Much stronger. So I wanted you to maybe, for those of you who have gone through some tough relationships, can you tell people why that relationship oh, made you stronger right. and how it made you a stronger person? Yes, easily. Well, so I'm all right. So Bobby was notwithstanding what Manny just said, he was figuratively the boy next door. Our moms had grown up in the same apartment building. Our grandmothers were friends. Our fathers were friends. He was a doctor. My dad was a doctor. I'd had a crush on him since I was eight and he was 12. Totally unrequited, appropriately unrequited at that age. She never paid any attention to me until I was 25. And then we were at a cousin, one of my cousin's weddings, and he looked at me, and I thought, Bobby's looking at me. I'm going to marry him. That's how much thought went into it. <laughs> so my mistake was thinking that I could have a fantasy about somebody and then will them to be the person I wanted them to be rather than actually taking the time to get to know him, because had I taken the time to get to know him, I would not have married him. Now, I had a wonderful daughter out of it, so it was well worth it, but I realized, and this is a lesson to all of you who are kind of single and wishing that you were in a couple, and you just think that if you were in a couple, you would be happy, right? 
I have never been lonelier than in an unhappy marriage. Never. Nothing is worse than you get in the bed next to somebody and you are just dreading that you might bump up against each other. It's just an awful feeling. And so, the, and, but, but for me, I had, and I don't, I don't want to say life was easy. I had a lot of advantages and I worked really, really hard. But at that stage, there wasn't anything that I'd worked hard for that I didn't get. And so to have my marriage crumble when my parents... I mean, my parents were married until my dad died in 62 years of marriage, and a really good marriage, and so that was my model. And it was the first time I had to say, no matter how hard I try, I just can't make this work. And I felt like a failure as opposed to, hey, it just didn't work out, right? And I had to pick myself back up and say, no, this doesn't define me. I made a mistake. I didn't think it through very clearly. But life goes on. Nobody died. Um, okay. Well, actually, Bobby did. Bobby die. died. Yeah, yeah. He did. Die, he so. did. I was gonna. I mean, I, as soon that. as I said that, I was like, "Oops." I was he like, did. "Yeah." yeah. <laughs> Bobby did die. But we're gonna move on to the next question. <laughs> oh my God! May he rest in peace, though. May he rest in peace. But I'm still upset about a lot of the things that he did to you. Um, so that was one thing on the list was the happy marriage. Okay. Then the fulfilled job. So, so we're gonna now skip to the Obamas, but vis a vis you leaving your job. So. One of the things that I wanted to ask you was both you and Michelle Robinson at the time left really high-powered, important jobs that took a lot of work to get to for um, public service, for jobs in government. And I guess another question I wanted to ask was um, for those people maybe in the room or who are watching that have a job that they've worked really hard to get to and they've gone to fancy schools to get to and their, their parents are proud of them and they don't feel fulfilled – what do you think was about you and Michelle Robinson that gave you the wherewithal, the courage, the ability to leave that job for something that was paid less and in public service and in city government? Yes, that's a good question. So uh, two different things. For me, it was misery. Anybody here at a big law firm before I just... Oh, I'm so sorry. One person. I'm so, so sorry. Um, well, in any event. They don't come to Manny's events. Well, but you know... It's not for everybody, let's just say that. And, it, and I did not feel fulfilled. And, and after I had Laura, I would leave her every day after I had a very generous four months paid maternity leave, which was unheard of back then. And I went back to work and I would say, I'm leaving her to go do something that is meaningless to me. And I wasn't even very good at it. I'd sit there and stare at those timesheets and think, what did I do that would be worth charging clients this ridiculously obscene amount of money? And I couldn't really come up with anything, and so I'd be blank. And um, I had a good friend who worked in local government, and he'd been a partner at a law firm. Mayor Harold Washington was the first black mayor of Chicago, had been elected in 1983. And my friend had gone and worked for him last two years of his first term. The mayor had just been reelected, and so my friend took me to lunch, and he said, why don't you try public service? You'll feel a part of something bigger and more important than yourself. And there was something about that that just tugged at me, and by now, I love Chicago. I didn't like it initially, but by this point, it's home. And I thought, well, maybe I could take that great education from Stanford and Michigan and those six years practicing law and apply it to something that's actually purposeful and good. And I remember, um, and I had a very fancy office on the 79th floor of what was a Sears Tower in Chicago. Beautiful view of Lake Michigan, sailboats out there. And, and I walked into City Hall that first day. And for reasons I cannot really remember, my mother drove me to work my first day. Now, that's a little odd, right? 
And I, I don't know why she did, except that maybe it was so when we pulled up in front of City Hall, she could say, I can't believe I spent all that money on tuition for you to do this with your life. Did she say that? She did. She did? Oh, you know my mom. Yeah, of course she said that. And it's only been maybe within the last five or six years she's admitted, she's admitted, well, okay, maybe you were right. Maybe that was the right decision for you to make after all. And I remember walking in, my boss meets me in reception, he says, let me take you to your office, and he does air quotes. It's never a good sign when somebody, <laughs> somebody does that. So he takes me to this cubicle in the bowels of an agency, and he goes, you have a window? And I said, it faces an alley. And he goes, windows are coveted around here. And I was like, oh, okay, it's gonna be like that, huh? Uh, but I felt like I was where I belonged. And, uh, and when I met Michelle Robinson, and I interviewed her, to, this is four years later, to come and work when I was uh, with me when I was Deputy Chief of Staff for then Mayor Daley. Um, I'll never forget that interview. And it's in, this is a lesson for those of you who go to job interviews because she walks in, she's confident, she looks me dead in the face, shakes my hand, sits down, she sees her resume on my desk, never mentioned Princeton undergrad, Harvard Law School, Sidley and Austin. She told me her story, which we now all know is kind of the quintessential American story. Growing up on the south side of Chicago, working class family, parents had not gone to college, but instilled in she and her brother, Craig, this sense of excellence and hard work and education and giving back. And then she said to me um, that in the prior year, both her father and her best friend had died. And it was such a wake up call. And she said, well, my goodness, Maybe, you know, we, we're not going to live forever. Maybe we better be figuring out how to be more purposeful. And she thought, am I really being purposeful here at this law firm? Or might there be a, a greater good of public service? And that's where we clicked, was this sense of, no, a big law firm is just not for us, and there must be something else we can do. And both of us willing to kind of buck the system, me, my mom. And, and she would say that if it hadn't been for her fiance, who initially was not very happy about the idea, when I offered her the job on the spot, and wisely she demurred and said, let me get back to you. And then I called her and I said, well, what about, you gonna come and work here? And she said, well, my fiance doesn't think it's such a good idea. I'm like, well, who is he? And why do we care what he thinks? <laughs> I'm offering you the job. And I thought we clicked. And, and, uh, but she has said subsequently that because he was such a swerver, uh, he kind of is like, hey, try this. Once we had dinner and I kind of worked him over, he's like, you don't have to follow that straight line. You don't have to follow your 10-year plan. She was a box checker too. And so um, we both swerved and that's where we met. Um, I, before we go to the next question, I wanted to, let, maybe, maybe you don't know this, but, um, so I was an intern in the White House in 2011, and the place where they put, and I interned in your office, and the place where they put us, we called it the pit, because it was... Uh, it, there was it, a lot of you in there together. We, they smushed us all into this one room with no windows, and we all were in, it was kind of a pit. You we were left, in the White House. But we, no, 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 but what I was going to say, <laughs> wait, no, 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 I wasn't done. What I was going to say was, just like you were in the bowels and you knew it was amazing, you were happy and you felt honored, so too in the pit, I was very happy and I loved it because I was in the White House. Okay. <laughs> so the dinner, the dinner with the fiance, um, who is Barack Obama and Michelle Robinson. Um, uh, can you kind of just, uh, can you just paint the picture? You're walking in, is it low lighting? Is it white tablecloths? 
How many forks are on the table? How, is, how are they sitting? Are they holding hands? Is he wearing sunglasses? He still smoked at that to- point, right? I've never in my life seen him smoke. Okay. But, but, but he did still but smoke he did at still that point, smoke. but not in front of me. But like that first dinner, like what were some of the little notes that you might, that you can tell us about that first meeting? So it was an okay restaurant. It was downtown Chicago, like two blocks from City Hall. It was not expensive. None of us could have afforded expensive. It did have a tablecloth. Uh, they sat together on one side of the table. I sat on the other side. And what struck me about them at dinner is you could just feel not just the love and kind of, and they're engaged at the time. They're not married yet. But the respect. They listened to one another when the other one spoke. They listened to me. He had this uncanny way of getting me to open up. And I've already told you, I never talked about Iran. I mean, literally never talked about it. And I would always go through this thing, and he did it. He's like, so where are you from? I said, I'm from Chicago. He said, did you grow up here? I said, yep. And he said, were you born here? And I was like, no, I wasn't born here. And he goes, where were you born? I was like, I was born in Iran. And I kind of wait for like some banal response or shock or whatever. And instead, he said, well, that's interesting. Tell me about it. So I was like, well, my dad was a doctor, and I start to tell him the story. And he says, what was your experience like? Because I spent some years in Indonesia. I was like, oh, you did? Tell me about that. So he started telling me about Indonesia. And what came out of this conversation is, first of all, at the end of the dinner, three things. Number one, I think he was really the first adult, I thought, who got me and who had had similar childhood experiences. So, for example, we both said we feel like we can walk in a room and we can find something in common with whoever is in that room. I don't care where you're from. I don't care anything about you. Because why? Because our childhood experience was playing with kids from all over the world. And, you know, I spoke French and English and Farsi because the kids I was with spoke all those languages. And we put them all in the same sentence together. And we had our own little secret society, even though we had all these differences, superficial differences. So that's one thing. The other thing we agreed on is that there is a lot about the United States that if you've never left this country, you probably take for granted. And I'm not saying we don't have problems. We do. But, you know, in Shiraz, the kinds of illnesses that my mom worried about, the need to boil my liquids and peel my foods and be so vigilant about our care, the fact that it was not a democracy and that there were severe consequences if you were to cross the Shah, for example. Um, And then the final thing we talked about is the United States, I believe, is already a pretty great country, not a perfect country by any stretch of the imagination. It's not the only country on Earth. And that you can actually learn a great deal outside of our shores. So we have this conversation. Okay, so at the end of dinner, not only did I think that we bonded and he kind of got me and I got him, but I thought, my goodness, there are these talented young people. They could just do anything in the world. And I thought... You know, and he'd said, maybe one day I might want to go into politics or run for office. And I thought, you are so talented. Maybe, just maybe one day, you could be mayor of Chicago. <laughs> that was the ceiling I had on him. Because Harold Washington was the first black mayor. And I thought, well, maybe you could get to that point. Because I put him up on a pedestal. Well, he did exceed my expectations by a little bit. So um, we're now going to get to That his... was the summer of 91. That was the summer of 91. And in 92, they get married, right? They get and married. they moved to three blocks away from you. They did, right but, around the corner. And you said that it was kind of like, you kind of were like their big sister. That's I how was. you described it. I was their big sister. I still am. And you're still their big sister. I still consider myself their big sister. For a moment there, he was the boss of me, which I wasn't that happy about. <laughs> um, when he first posed the subject, I must have looked at him funny, and I was like, okay. 
kind of used to being the boss of you. <laughs> and he says, yeah, but I'm going to be the president of the United States of America. I think you can get used to working for me. I feel like you're probably one of the few people that can say you were his boss at one point. I mean, he had, his, he had, he had some bosses at Sidley and Austin also. But, yeah, yeah, he did. And you continue to be his boss. So hmm. we're going to talk. I try, it's hard. I want to do a bunch of tell me's. So I'm going to say, can you tell me about this moment or this thing or this time, okay? Yes. Um, Tell me about the night that he lost to Bobby Rush in his first campaign when he was state senator. He ran for Congress and in Democratic primary, and he lost. It was the only election he lost. It's the only election he lost. And, you were with and him. we thought he could win that election. Um, it just shows you how naive we were. We thought, well, he's this great. A uh, smart, charismatic guy, and we lived in Bobby Rush's district, obviously. And Bobby Rush seemed kind of old school and not very vibrant. And we thought, well, you can, we could beat him. Well, he got shellacked, shellacked for a whole host of reasons. Um, so, but the the thing that was interesting about it is that he's like, okay, and he's such an intellectual. He's like, well, let me think about why I lost, and let me analyze why I lost. And then he moved on once he figured out why he lost. And then when he decided to run for the US Senate, which I was very much against, as was his wife, he gave us the argument for all the reasons why he lost the congressional race and how he would correct that when he ran for Senate. And we had, um, as I described in the book, his wife had convinced me to host a brunch Uh, with our closest friends to talk him out of this ridiculous idea. And I, was, I agreed with her that it was a bad idea, so I said, sure. And so we had about a three-hour brunch, and started out, everybody around the table was against it. And at the end of the three hours, he had given us all of the arguments for why this was a great idea. And I remember um, I said to him at one point, I'm afraid you're going to lose, and if you do, your political career will be over. And he said, well, if I'm not afraid of losing, why are you? And I thought, well, that was a good point. <laughs> And then he, Very good point. and then he, he, which was so smart, and it shouldn't surprise me because he's obviously such a smart person. But he, he made you a part of the leadership of it. He, well, I said to, uh, two things that happened. One, I said you can't raise any money because you don't actually know any people who have money in Chicago. And he said, well, you can chair my finance committee and you go raise the money. And I was like, what did I say that? <laughs> So I did share his finance committee, and then his wife said to him, so if you lose this race, we're done with politics, right? You're going to go get a real job? And he committed to her that if he lost, then that would be it. And so she said, okay, let's get this over with, and you can get on to you know, a real job. So I don't think when he first said it, either of us really thought that he was going to win. Uh, and things did fall his way. Yeah. They really did fall his way. Bad things happened to his opponents, just dropped like flies. Yep. Um, and you had nothing to do with that. Right? No, 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 no. No, no. And I say this, look, no, not tongue-in-cheek, but the one thing that I can say about all of his campaigns is that we had a lot of information on his opponents that was negative, and we never used it. That's just not how he rolled. Um, so I, I listened to the audio book from Michelle Obama for Beloved, Be- Becoming. Beloved is a different book. <laughs> and, and she didn't write it. I wasn't uh, going to correct you. R.I.P. No, I know. I went to, I did fifth grade English. I remember. I read it. Um, and I cried a lot in Becoming. I think I cried a lot because um, the when she describes the love between her and Barack Obama in her voice, it's so beautiful. 
And you can feel it. You can almost feel her like when she talks about, especially the golden years in the beginning. It's just such a aspirational love. And I guess I was crying because I was like, I'm never going to have this. So this is as close oh, as I'm going to get. Sure you will. But, but the moment that, that you, in your book, that r- brought me back to that time I was listening to Becoming in Montana in a car on the roads on my own, sobbing like a child, was when you talk about the moment he was ambivalent during the Senate campaign, and you and everyone could tell that he was like, his heart wasn't in it, and you had to pull him aside. Tell That's me. a good moment. You know, no one's asked me about that. Ah, yes! I uh, a lot of conversations. Yes! I did it! Such a good moment. First question that, that no one... And you've been one, on the road. And I've been on the road for months now, and it's one of my favorite stories about him. Right? Okay. I don't, maybe I set it up too big. But it's a, it's, a, it's a simple story, but it's reflective of him. So... All right, so he talked me into chairing his finance committee. So I'm going to events early, and I'm like helping write out name tags, and he's strolling in late, and I'm like, why are you late? You need to show up early so that people know that you really want this. And, and he was, his um, speeches were a little lackluster, and I just felt his heart wasn't in it, but everybody was working so hard, and he said he wanted to do this. And so I invited him out to lunch, and when he walked in, he said, I must be in trouble if you're inviting me out to lunch. So I said, well, I just want to talk to you. And I said, you know, you don't have to do this. If you don't want to do it, then, hey, let's pull up stakes. There's no shame in it. A lot of people drop out of campaigns. Uh, But if you're going to do it, you got to kind of do it. And I remember he looked at me, and his eyes kind of filled up. And he said, I am ambivalent. And I said, why? And he says, because as I'm getting closer, and it's looking like maybe I could win, I realize what a sacrifice this is going to be for me and for my family. And keep in mind, you know, his father abandoned him. And so he didn't grow up with a dad. And the one thing he'd always said is that he was going to be a present and engaged father. And if he runs for the U.S. Senate and wins, he's going to spend a lot of time away from home. That's the nature of the job. And it wasn't really until it became real, like he, he too realized I could win this, that he kind of pulled back for a minute. And... Um, and, I'm, and so my goal was to say, you have permission to not do this. We don't have to do it. You have to make, you're the only one who can make that judgment. And we didn't resolve anything at lunch, but I will say within the next kind of couple of weeks, he kind of got destroyed. So he must have reconciled it in his own heart, but I will never forget him tearing up. And he's like, I, they just mean so much to me. And this will come with a cost. And he teared up one more time when I knew he was going to run for president because I recognized that look in his eye. And it was when he wrote, well, my parents had two book parties for him. One when he wrote his first book, Dreams from My Father. And I twisted the arms of like 40 of my closest relatives and friends, and I have a big family, to come. Nobody wanted to come. It was in my parents' living room. Everybody had a seat. That's how few people were there. Second book party they had for him was after Audacity of Hope, and it was in about October, or I guess it would have been, of 2006. And it was pouring down rain, and there was a line around the block. And my parents had rent a little cheap, rented a tent, but there was a gap between the house and the tent. And so one of my friend's kids had an umbrella, and he was trying to walk people back and forth. Everyone's soaking wet. And we're out in the backyard, and he starts to talk about the book, and the, there's a chapter in the book where he talks about his wife, and he choked up again, talking about the sacrifices she'd made. And I said, oh, God, he's about to ask her to make another one. I can tell what's coming now. 
And so this is just to say, this is not like a pity party for him because they're fine and they're actually really, really good now. But it comes with a toll. And, it, and a perfect marriage, as you know from her book, took a lot of hard work. I mean, they, had, they went to counseling. And when anyone who's had two young children and a spouse that's, that is spending a lot of time away from home, it's inevitably going to be tense. And they work through it. And I think that was really the purpose of her story is that that, that really true work that goes into a good relationship. One day, Valerie. It's coming. Keep your eyes peeled. Hey, keep your eyes peeled for me. Okay. All right. We'll well, look out for each other. We have an audience here. We have we people. Do. We do. We um, have people in the audience. She'll be signing books afterwards, everyone. So, <laughs> big surprise, he wins the election. Wins the can election. you tell me what your, if you can, go back to that day? This is the presidential? First yes. presidential? Yes, we've now fast-forwarded. Okay, just trying to keep Senate. up. Yeah, well, he did. there wasn't a long time before he won the Senate yeah. and You're became right. president, as we all remember. What was the first thought that you had, or the first thought or memory from Election Day and the last? Well, we went to Indianapolis on Election Day, and my daughter had come home from law school. She was, like, knee-deep, so she missed, really, the whole campaign, but she thought well, I should be there on the day of the election, and hey, I'll go hang out with you. So we go to Indianapolis and back, and she said, well, that wasn't so bad. What have you been complaining about? I'm like, this is election day. We do that like five states a day when he's you know, on the campaign trail. So we go, and it was a wonderful trip. We stopped by a volunteer office where people were working, and, and so that was lovely. So that was the beginning of the day. But I think what I remember most about the election night is that I left their hotel to go to Grant Park ahead of, of the uh, first family. So all of, all of the friends and family went ahead. And we were in the bus on the way to Grant Park where we heard over the radio that they called the election. And so I decided to go backstage to congratulate him before he goes out to speak. And so I'm backstage waiting for him and I see him drive up and I, I would have, this is a very funny aside for those of you who have not read Mrs. Obama's book, but children, you know, they out of the mouths of babes. So, they're driving, and, and at the time that they call the election, you then get the entire presidential motorcade, right? And they clear the streets, and they stop the traffic. And so on their way to Grand Park, there are no cars on the street. And Malia said, Daddy, is anybody coming to your party? <laughs> she thought there was no one there. So they get there, and there are a million people at the party. So I'm backstage, and he walks up the stairs, and I see him coming up the steps, and I thought, well, what am I going to say? I mean, this is like a big deal, right? And so he's walking towards me, and I'm like panicking, and I don't know what to say. And he gets like right up on me, and he must have thought the same thing because we never said a word. He gave me a hug, I gave him a hug, and he went on stage. And there just there was no way I could have summed up in words how proud I was of both him and our country that night, which gets dangerously close to Mrs. Obama saying, for the first time, I was really proud of my country. Yeah, but, I was going to skip over that one. Well, you know what, they took her totally out of context. Yeah. But the point is, this was a historic thing for our country. And looking at it through the eyes of my parents, who never, given the story I told you about my dad from early on, and never in their wildest dreams did they think that this country would do something like this. And in fact, the whole time I was away from my day job working on the campaign, they would say things to me like, well, don't you think you should spend more time in Chicago? And why are you traveling around the country? And I remember at one point, uh, then Barack Obama was down, way down in the polls, and my mother said, well, next time. And I'm like, oh, there'll be no next time. Michelle Obama made it clear. It is now or bust. And um, I, would, I will tell you that the, um, 
Sunday after the election, they were on 60 Minutes. And this is back when 60 Minutes was still really, really very cool. Um, <laughs> it's still cool, but it's not as novel as, I mean, I've even been on 60 Minutes. So back then, I was like, oh my god, they're on 60 Minutes. Um, and uh, my, I watched it with my parents. My dad was very ill at the time, so we were in a rehab room. And they were magic. And it reminded me of that couple I had met that summer night in 1991. They just, they just looked like the perfect couple. And they were laughing back and forth and teasing one another. And it was just magical. And so at the end of it, my mother looked up at me. And she said, how did you know that they could win? Not that he could win. Not that he would win, but even that he could win. And I said, because you raised me to believe that if you have a dream and you work hard and you're resilient and you, you know, put your shoulder to the metal, that anything's possible. And she said, well, I never believed that. <laughs> and then my father pipes up, yeah, me either. <laughs> and I'm like, you raised me. And, and what struck me, what struck me about that, and I was really, I was totally shocked and I thought, oh my gosh. They raised me aspirationally, not defined by or shackled by their limitations, but free to really make my own reality. And I think that's what we should all do for our children and those that we love is that, you know, yes, you have, you are, you feel some limits because of your life experiences, but don't put those on people who have hopes and dreams, like free them up to discover their voice. For those of you who um, are starting to think of your questions, we're just going to I'm going to ask her a couple of questions about her time with the president, and then we're going to get to audience Q&A. So, so start thinking. So start thinking. Senior advisor and special assistant to the president for intergovernmental affairs shit, and the Office of Public Engagement. That's pretty good. It was close, wasn't it? Was it was really close. It was close. I, I, I don't... I, can you help... Because I, I understand how important your role was um, both officially and unofficially, but can you give people who maybe don't know exactly what your role in the White House was and kind of a little you explanation? Me what exactly is it that you do? <laughs> well, there's the on paper. There was the on paper, and then there was the outlasting five chiefs of staff. Ooh, that was kind of rough, wasn't it? So why don't we start with on paper, because we're going to get to the second part. So, okay, so on paper, I had four jobs. So first was overseeing the Office of Public Engagement. And that was the gate, oh yeah, thank you. That was the gateway <laughs> through which you, the American people, would interface with the White House. And we did it through a whole range of constituencies. So um, the data point that I was particularly fond of is that President Bush had two constituencies. He had the business community and the evangelical community. We had 64. And because we represented and worked with everybody, and we cast a broad net. And so that office, uh, and that's where you worked. Right? Yes. Yes, all right. Second office. She just looked at me. Second office was Intergovernmental Affairs. And that was the um, office that was responsible for engaging with all elected officials around the country, except members of Congress. So I drew the really good basket. So the mayors and the governors and the state legislators and the uh, secretaries of states, the attorney generals, state attorney generals, everybody who was elected. And the reason why um, I think the president gave me that responsibility is because I had worked for a mayor and I had chaired the board of a, the Chicago Transit Authority that was a state-created organization. So I had worked a lot with the state legislature and I appreciated 
that our cities are our economic engines, and he wanted to make sure that our decisions were informed by the public and by state and local elected officials, not just people in Congress. And I learned in local government that your constituents are proximate when you're in local government, in that they know where you live, they have your phone number, they follow you to the grocery store, the dry cleaners. I had people who used to lobby my daughter when she was only six years old. Um, and it's a 24-7 job, and that's as it should be, because that's what public service is about. It's about being available and listening to the public. And I really learned to listen, and I learned to listen to people who had vastly different opinions from one another, and to try to earn their trust and respect so that we could reach a consensus. And that didn't mean everybody got 100%, but it meant everybody walked away. We used to say, a little unhappy, but you knew you had been respected and heard. Um, so that was a very important office. Uh, to, those two offices were important to him. And then I also chaired the White House Council on Women and Girls that he created two months in. Woo! First time ever a president had an office in the White House or a council that was comprised of representatives from every agency in the federal government. And they were um, charged with looking at their mission through a gender lens. Like, what are we doing? Our programs, our policies, legislation that closes the gender gap. And then we engaged broadly around the country in every part of the country, both with state and local elected officials and a whole range of constituency groups in the business community and academics to, to focus on gender equity. And I, to this day, now co-chair with Tina Chin, who worked with me on this in the White House, an organization called the United State of Women. We had a huge summit our last year in Washington. 5,000 people came from around the country. And then last summer, we had another conference in Los Angeles under the auspices, not of the White House Council on Women and Girls, which no longer exists, but under the United States of Women. And we had twice as many people show up, 10,000 people showed up. And we're gonna have another one next summer in uh, Dallas, Texas. Uh, so come, uh, it's gonna be great. And then senior advisor, which is whatever he wants it to mean, your, your line responsibility is to make sure that everything that goes to him goes through his senior advisors first. And we work with the cabinet, we work with um, the other senior staff, the policy councils that debate it, we read paper, we produce paper, he reads paper, and he debates it with us, and then ultimately he makes the decision. But it, we're, it is our job to advise him. That's a long, long I, list. I know, but I feel like it was important to get it all out there. Yes. You were the longest serving senior advisor in US history. I know. January 20th to January 20th. In fact, I waved goodbye when the Obamas were off to the inauguration. That was a bridge too far from me. But um, I just couldn't go. But they had to go. And so I w Tina and I waved goodbye. We'd gone over that morning to watch the ceremony, which I didn't know much about. But it's kind of cool. They give him the flag that was flown the first day he was in office and then the last day. And then the vice president and Dr. Biden came down, and that was kind of emotional. And then... Uh, they said goodbye to the ushers and the butlers, and that was just like horrendously painful. Uh, several of who were black, and if you could imagine, their first time they had an opportunity to serve a black president. Uh, and then they were off, and uh, Tina and I walked back along the colonnade for that last walk, and we peeked gruelishly into the Oval Office, and they'd already taken down his curtains, and furniture was all wrapped up, and we thought, okay, it's time to go. Okay, so I don't know why nobody stayed eight years. That's crazy. I, I loved it. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have left a minute sooner. So I remember this. So I, I supported Brian Bond, who was the LGBT um, liaison, and Charlie Galbraith, who was the tribal liaison. And there were days where I had to give tours. Sometimes they both had tours, so I would have to find Native people and LGBT <laughs> people and be like, "I'm going to be giving both of you a tour." 
and doing it together. Uh, my question to you on OPE, Office of Public Engagement, was sometimes you had to group constituencies with one person that didn't, because there was some familiarity. I remember Kyle, I think, had Italians, athletes, and celebrities. Students. And students. Because he was Italian and yeah. he had good hair. And <laughs> exactly. So was there, I guess my question is like, which constituency were you like the most excited to be doing events with? You're like, great, we have an event for Italians. This is awesome. You know what? They were all amazing. I learned so much. I mean, I remember I'm not into country western music. Why? Because I really never had listened to country western music. And so we would have these musical festivals at the White House. And I went to the one for country music. It was amazing. Like I spent my whole life not appreciating country music. And I think part of the magic of my job is it, it allowed me to really get to know this country and the heartbeat and the strength of our diversity and the, what we have in common through that diversity. And so uh, it'd be like asking you to choose which is your favorite child. I enjoyed them all. Okay, I just have a couple of memories I wanted to uh, tell me about, but and I know it's gonna be hard, but... Uh-oh. Tell me about the Saudi jeweled briefcase. <laughs> I don't think anybody's asked me about that. That was my favorite part. The briefcase full of jewels? So, all right, so we go... That was amazing. In I'm the villa, to know you, yeah. In the villa, in the, in the, sh the vi that was, I loved it. You, that like was like that, the, huh? you know what I thought of? I thought of, do you, have you seen Sex in the City, the movie, tw yes. the second one? Yes, I have. I thought of when they go yes. to Abu Dhabi and they're in yes. that. And was it like similar. that? Yeah, okay. very similar. But you're, but you're, we go to you're Saudi Arabia. Miranda? We're go <laughs> <laughs> you're a lawyer, you're a lawyer. I'll stick with Miranda. You could have said Samantha. Okay. okay. So. <laughs> so okay. Uh, yeah, I'm learning I'll, things. I'm clinging to Miranda here. Oh, so God. we go to Saudi Arabia and uh, we get off the plane and the king has a uh, luncheon for us at the airport and it's like 150 people and two women, one of the president's other aides and myself. And so, and it was a little uncomfortable, but you know, we go through it. So then we go back and the king invites us up to his Camp David, which is like a horse farm he has somewhere. And we all have our own villa. My villa was about the size of this room. And so I'm in my villa trying to get my bearings here, jet lagged or whatever. And it was the first stop of a very, we went from Saudi Arabia to Egypt to Germany where we visited Buchenwald and then Normandy for the anniversary of, um, of Normandy. And so we're at the very beginning, we're all jet lagged. I go to my room and there is a, a bag and I open the bag and in the bag is a green briefcase, like a leather, some animal skin briefcase. And I thought, who carries briefcases anymore? Why would he give us this as a gift? This is weird. So I don't think anything of it. And I text the woman, Alyssa, next door. And I go, Alyssa, did you get a briefcase? And she goes, no, they never give the head of scheduling in advance anything. I can't believe I got left out. And she goes off on a tirade about being excluded, <laughs> which she was wont to do. So then about a half an hour or so, she texts me and she goes, I got my briefcase, open it. So I go and I open my briefcase and there inside the briefcase, are $250,000 worth of jewels. I know this because they appraise this stuff. And it was like two watches, an emerald necklace, an emerald bracelet, an emerald ring, pens. I mean, it was amazing. Jeweled pens? Pens. A whole, I mean, and the briefcase is huge. So of course we can't keep this stuff. So I close it up and I said, Alyssa, where do we turn in the briefcase? And it's this weird thing, like they give you these gifts. They must know we can't keep the gifts, but you go through this dance. Now you can keep it if you want it, and then you have, but then you have to pay for it. And not in what it would cost you in Saudi Arabia, but what it would cost you in the United States. 
which was the, where I got the $250,000. So as we're returning our jewelry, we run into Rahm Emanuel, who was the chief of staff, and he's found his briefcase, and his are rubies, and he's like, Amy, that's his wife, her, your birthday's next week, I'm in shape, well, this is great. He returned his briefcase too. I want a jeweled pen, um, but I'm never gonna get one. Dalai Lama, the Dalai Lama letter delivery. Ah. So this falls in the category of senior advisor, right, where you don't know what you're gonna do one day to the next. Like you have your responsibilities and then someone in the national security team had a bright idea. So uh, the Dalai Lama sent word that he was gonna come and visit the United States. He had planned to come before the government of China came to the United States. That was a big problem for the government of China, which was then gonna create problems for us. And so some bright person, young person on the national security team had a bright idea, which was how about if we send Valerie to Dharamsala, India, with a letter from President Obama inviting the Dalai Lama to come to the United States a little bit later than when he had intended to come. That was a bright idea. You know, it is not easy to get to Dharamsala. I imagine there's no direct flights. No, and in fact, we, fact, we flew over Afghanistan, and I can remember we had to change planes to a plane that had no markings on it. I remember thinking, well, no wonder we can't find Osama bin Laden, because you could see all these caves in Afghanistan, not to mention that he wasn't in Afghanistan. But anyway, so... Um, <laughs> but at the time... That, but we did find him. But you and did find him. did find him. But anyway... I remember that. So I go to Dharamsala, I get there a couple days ahead of... His Holiness, and they gave me a tour of an orphanage, for example, that had 5,000 kids in it. And many of the people who worked in the orphanage had been orphans themselves, which helped me appreciate he had been in exile for 50 years. And the government of India gave him property that he converted into a village, and all these people were living in exile. And I visited with these nuns who had been imprisoned in, in China and fled, uh, for having had photos of the Dalai Lama in their homes. And so, and I met with prisoners also who had escaped. And you, you began to develop a sense of what it might, must be like to live permanently in exile. And then in walks the Dalai Lama with his joyful spirit and he's happy. And I was like, how can you be happy given what you've been through in your life? And it did give me kind of an epiphany. Well, okay, well, if he's cheerful, I really have no excuses but to be happy. And he spent about two and a half hours with me, and he laughed, and he, he laughed, but he was also kind of critical of China, and he, he shared all of his opinions about stuff with me. Um, anyway, so fast forward, he comes to the White House a little later than he had originally planned. And so, of course, I put myself into the meeting because... This man, I feel like he's changed my life. In fact, when we first returned to the United States, I said to President Obama, I think he's changed my life. I just, I think I'm gonna just be a more joyful spirit because why shouldn't I be? And so when His Holiness walks in, President Obama said, I don't know if you remember, this is Valerie Jarrett. She visited you in Dharamsala. She said you changed her life. And he looked at me and he laughed. He said, she exaggerates. I exaggerate. He knows everything. He knows everything. So I had a lot more, but I'm just going to do one more tell me about because I want to get to folks' questions. Can you tell me about Reverend Pinckney's funeral oh, and the Amazing yeah. Grace moment? Well, it's a long story, which I have to tell properly because it was the most extraordinary day in the White House. So that morning um, begins with... Our, end, our morning meeting in the chief of staff's office. And it was at the end of the Supreme Court term. 
And we used to always play guessing games of like, what is the Supreme Court going to rule on a case? And the day before, they had affirmed for the second time the constitutionality of the Affordable Care Act. You might say, why on earth do we have to go twice to the Supreme Court on what should be so obviously a good thing? But we did. Uh, so we were feeling very good. And we figured, all right, well, they're probably not going to do anything today. It's a Friday. Uh, and it was the day that we were supposed to go to uh, Charleston for Reverend Pickney's funeral, uh, who was murdered together with eight parishioners in his church. And so we're sitting in the chief of staff's office and my assistant rushes in with a note and it says, Supreme Court ruled on marriage equality today, 5-4, we win. And so I'm like, oh my God. And so I tell everybody in the room and Dennis McDonough, who was the chief of staff at the time, uh, said, you should go tell the president because the LGBTQ issues had been in my portfolio and people like Brian and others had been working on it since day one. And so I go running down to the Oval Office to tell President Obama about the case and he's not there. That one, that's a bummer. So I walked back to the chief of staff's office and he said, well, what did he say? I said, he wasn't there. He said, well, didn't you call him? I thought, I guess I could pick up the telephone. Um, and so meanwhile, the chief of staff's assistant heard us. So she's dialing the White House operator. And so I pick up the phone and the operator must have said to President Obama, Valerie Jarrett's on the phone because they announced who's on the phone. So I pick up the phone and he goes, what? I thought, well, that's not very friendly. Um, and it, it kind of threw me because he's never like that. So I was like, well, <clears throat> sorry, I was calling you to tell you that the marriage equality decision came down 5-4. And there's a long pause and he goes, and who won? <laughs> and I was like, we did. And he said, ah, it's a great day, I'll be right down. Well, the reason why he was gruff with me is he was still upstairs working on the eulogy, trying to figure out what on earth to say after we had been to so many memorial services and funerals as a result of gun violence and just trying to piece it all together. So then it's chaos. We are in the Oval Office. I'm trying to get the plaintiffs on the phone for the marriage equality case. He's trying to finish now two speeches and throwing it all together. And then normally when there's an event in the Rose Garden, and they're, they're out there hammering the Rose Garden, they build a stage every time that he goes out there, press risers or whatever. Uh, normally when uh, the president speaks in the Rose Garden. There's kind of an unwritten rule that unless you had direct involvement in the matter, you shouldn't be hanging out on the colonnade or the Rose Garden. You should be working because you're working the White House. Now, everybody's up in their office watching it on TV, but you're not supposed to be hanging out. That day, the colonnade and the entire Rose Garden was packed full of all these young staff who just wanted to be there for that moment. And it was quite a moment. And what I remember most about it was the sense of that he communicated about these changes happen as a result of really hard work over a sustained period of time. And it feels like a thunderbolt when it happens until you remember all that it took to get there. So when the president was elected, marriage equality was only legal in two states. It's hard to believe, right? And by the time the decision came down, it was 37 states and the District of Columbia. And I often query to myself, would the Supreme Court have reached the same decision had the case come up on President Obama's first day in office, compared to six years later, which shows you how important that groundwork is, which gets to like why we're here today and why it's so important to be civically engaged. Because all of that work that happened state by state, I think gave permission for the culture to shift and that, made it, that would have made it harder for the Supreme Court not to reach the right decision. And they are influenced by culture, uh, both ways, good or bad. Anyway, so then we go off on the helicopter right after his speech to Charleston. And it was kind of a somber moment, as you can imagine, as we're now dreading once again going to a service. And so he decides to lighten it up and he goes, 
I just want to warn this Mrs. Obama and myself, they said, I just want to warn you, I might sing. And we're like, sing? <clears throat> now, I had learned my lesson a few years earlier. We were in New York at some fundraiser, New York or somewhere, Philadelphia at a fundraiser, and <clears throat> Al Green had been on stage and had sung, and then President Obama followed him, and the guys that were working the equipment backstage were like, you should sing, President Obama. I'm like, no, you shouldn't. That's quite unpresidential, don't do that. Well, he sang, and it went viral, and it was great. So this time, he's like, I think I might sing. I said, I think that's a great idea. What exactly might you sing? And he said, amazing grace. He said, I'll wait and see how it feels at the moment. And I had been dreading it, as I said. And he walked into this convention center where they had the service, and it was electric. It was a celebration of life. And when he, when he started... So he paused right before he sang, and I was wondering, are you thinking about whether you're going to sing or not? And later he said, I was trying to figure out what key to sing in. <clears throat> it was quite got, a moment. I just got the chills. All right, so wait, I've I got to finish the story, just because it's really cool. I'm sorry, I know. Don't be sorry. <clears throat> Don't let me miss my plane. When's um, your... I'm taking the red eye. I came here tonight to When's be with your... you, I, and I oh take God. the red eye back. I wanted to be here. Wow. <clears throat> But I have to give a speech tomorrow morning at 8.30 in New York, so I have to... I have what time's your not, plane? I've forgotten. Whatever okay. I told you. Okay. What did I say? What, anyway, end of the story is this. <laughs> it's an important end of the story. So we fly back, and three weeks earlier, uh, the person who had been my LGBTQ liaison came in my office, I'm getting hoarse, and said, <clears throat> excuse me, I have an idea. I said, well, what is it? She said, well, I'm not sure it's a good idea. I said, what is it? She said, it's probably a really bad idea. I'm not even sure it's possible. I'm like, what is the idea? And so she said, well, it's actually not even my idea. It's Jeff Tiller's idea who works in the press office. I'm like, Aditi, you better come on out with this. She said, well, how about when the marriage equality case comes down, how about if we light the White House in a rainbow? I'm like, that is a damn good idea. Let's see if it's possible. And we figured out it was possible. And so when we flew back that night, we spent the rest of the evening on the north um, colonnade of the White House, North Portico, watching the sun go down, and the colors became, you know, from that faded rainbow to this absolutely brilliant color, and in front of Lafayette Park, packed full of people. A night I will never forget it. That photograph will go down in history, I think, and it was the, the most requested photograph of any photograph the entire time he was in office. All because a junior staff person said, this is an idea I have, and we listen. I love it. We're going to get to some audience questions now. Um, if you don't mind, uh, so Luke is going to be the microphone giver to her, and I'm just going to call on you. So if you have a question, just raise your hand. All the way in the back. Philip? Yes, hi. And if you could introduce yourself. Yes, and Luke's coming around with the microphone if you don't mind speaking into it. All right. Uh, hi, I just wanted to say uh, my name is Philip. It's a real honor to speak with you tonight. Um, thank you for all the work you did for those eight years and the work you continue to do now. Um, I guess I'll just keep it short. Um, what do you say to younger people who are in a space like this, who have their own lives and dramas and everything, but are just mortified by our political state, by the climate crisis? We're trying to get involved. It doesn't really seem like enough. Just like, what, what do you do? 
just love to hear your thoughts. Well, when you walk in the door, you'll see there is a <clears throat> light that says how many days left until you have the chance to vote. So first of all, go register and vote. Um, and I think it's, it's, that's just like the minimum. That's, I mean, part of why, in all seriousness, I wanted to come to this space is to support the civic engagement that takes place right here. And in order for you to vote, you need to know who's running for office. You need to do your homework. You need to be engaged. And then you need to hold them accountable. You need to be actively involved in improving your community and not just expecting somebody else to do it for you, but to feel this sense of empowerment. And I have traveled, as I said, every corner of this country, and I have seen ordinary people do extraordinary things. And that's what keeps me hopeful. It's you. It's the people who showed up tonight. There are many things that you could have been doing with your evening, but you came here tonight and to support the center, and I hope to support me and read my book. But, <clears throat> but that's what I think we have to keep focused on. And I try not to allow myself to go down this dark, dark hole, which is easy to go to today, and I say, how could a country that elected Barack Obama twice do what it did? Well, you know what? 43% of eligible voters didn't vote. And so I don't, part of what I say is I don't take this as a referendum. In fact, Hillary Clinton received the majority of the vote. But just imagine if everybody had actually turned out to vote. And there is a social contract that I believe goes along with being in a democracy, which means you do have to get involved. And <clears throat> things always seem impossible until they're inevitable. And I've been a part of something that was an unlikely story, and to the point I tried to make to my parents, if you believe in something, you work really, really hard. But you also have to be prepared to take the long view and recognize that change in our country never happens quickly. One year for my birthday, President Obama gave me a copy of a signed petition for universal suffrage, signed <clears throat> in 18, uh, 18... What am I trying to... Uh, I think it was 1888. 18... It wasn't 88, it was 88. I'm doing the math. Well, 66, 1866. Do you want me to look? Yeah. I but, think I marked it. Well, the reason why, well. It's at the end. Well, and it's, it's framed alongside of the resolution introducing the proposal to give women the right to vote, which was 1919. You do the math, it was 53 years between the two. 53 years, the women who were part of the original demonstrations and hunger strikes and who were imprisoned and whose husbands were throwing them out of the home, they didn't live to see the actual right to vote get passed. And that's 1866, part, you were right. <clears throat> Not surprised. Hanging up in my living room stuff. So the point is, is that we, we do have to recognize that the, just as the people who worked on marriage equality, uh, who were part of the Stonewall Revolution, many of them didn't live to see it become a national monument. But it laid the foundation. And I think part of what I worry about with the younger generation, now that I'm not in it anymore, is you all have this sense of immediacy. And part of it is you're spoiled. We're all spoiled because we, look, I used to walk to the library and look things up on index cards, whatever the hell that was. You just think of something and it's right there in the palm of your hand. And, and you have to have the fierce urgency of now coupled with the resilience to fight for the long view and to recognize that change takes time. And I mean, the reason why President Obama named his book The Audacity of Hope is it takes audacity to be hopeful. It's not easy to be hopeful. Our current climate is an example. Uh, but don't lose that hopefulness. Uh.
I love that. Question? Questions over here? I'm going to be faster with my responses because okay. I want to get to many. All right, right over here uh, with the striped shirt, sweater. <clears throat> I'm Simmy. Give him your fashion hair. <laughs> Hi, Simmy. I'm curious, what do you think are like the one or two most important like changes that America needs right now? As I like think about candidates and what they stand for, with your insight, like if you could change one or two things, what would they besides the orange guy? <clears throat> well, I would number one, what I said earlier, I would want the country to be much more civically engaged. Um, in terms of policy, I want to make sure that we continue to focus on ways of making our country fairer. I want every young child to have the same shot that my child had. I want to level the playing field for women, for people of color. I want to focus on what we have in common. I think part of what um, I react to are just the policies of the current administration, but the tone that's being set at the top of continuing to play to a small base as opposed to being the president for the entire country. And so I'm looking for someone who can bring us all together. And I think we as voters cannot have such ideological purity that we hold people up to an impossible standard. Just think about your parents or the people in your life. Do you agree with them about 100% of everything? No, of course you don't. And in this climate where I think the stakes are so incredibly high, I do believe our democracy is like hanging, hanging really by a thread. That we need somebody who can get in there and have the strength of um, goodness of spirit to help us heal and find each other again. I feel like we've just kind of lost one another and we're so far apart and we've got to come back together. All right, we have a question in the front. And then we're gonna to go to this side. Um, thank you for being here. I'll be honest, like I wasn't gonna ask a question because my heart was so full by so much that you said. Um, but I think I have to ask a question on behalf of like the mental health community. So I'm a psychologist and I think one thing that's in our ethics and is about like, being a social advocate. And so I'm wondering like, what you think in terms of the mental health community, what as we as mental health professionals should we be doing? Mm -hmm. um, because so much of what we do is, and so much of our ethics is so much about like, um, I think some of the things that you're talking about is what we're called to do as professionals in general. One thing I think we don't get enough training about is what does it actually mean to be a social advocate? And I think that this huge piece of civil uh, civic engagement is what's missing. And so I'm wondering what I, I couldn't that. agree with you more. I was just in San Francisco a few months ago speaking at the American Psychiatric Association. <clears throat> and I met with the executive committee afterwards. They said the number of people who've been seeking mental health services in the last three years has gone dramatically up. Depression and suicide among college-age students way up. I mean, we really have a mental health crisis in this country. It's one of the reasons why we work so hard under the Affordable Care Act to treat mental and physical health on par. Now, but there's still a stigma attached to mental health services, and we have to get rid of that stigma, and we need people to tell their stories. And a lot of what you do, I know, is help, help people develop the confidence to tell their stories and to open up to you and then maybe to open up more publicly. Um, and I think we need you right now to help people because their spirits are beaten down and they're scared. And I am now doing my paperback book, so I'm updating it. And I tell a story about being in New York at a financial services firm, big prominent firm. 
And I was doing a Q&A with some of their high performers and a woman raised her hand, I thought, to ask me a question. And she said, no, I just want to thank you because if it wasn't for President Obama, I wouldn't have DACA status and I might have been deported. And I'm terrified about what's going to happen to me. And in front of her peers, she broke down in tears, as did her peers. And so there's that empathy that I think we need your, we need professional help finding each other again. And I think, again, depending on these devices that pull us apart and allow us to stay in our echo chambers lonely and depressed and comparing ourselves to somebody else's best life, um, we're not developing the social skills that we need to sit and have a conversation with one another and disagree without being disagreeable and listen and maybe learn and who knows, you might change your opinion. And is that such a dreadful thing? And I think we aren't, that takes um, mental and psychological skills to be able to be curious, to be secure enough that you can be curious to listen to another side. Uh, and you could help do that too. There's some, we need you. And I know it's hard on you too. It takes its toll on you as well. All right, this side of the room. We have a question all the way in the back, Luke. The person with the glasses, hi. Hey. Uh Thank you. Uh, thanks for taking the question. Um, so I actually want to ask about um, 2020 strategy. Um, you know, so in term, we've when? Less than, less than a year out from, from an election. Um, and then I think the presidency is kind of boring. So the, the president, um, Obama, is, is working at the state level. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about you know, what do you suggest in terms of getting involved, state legislature level, other types of races. Um, what do you suggest we should think about? I think wherever your passion takes you, I mean, Mrs. Obama and I formed an organization called When We All Vote that's trying to change, it's nonpartisan, <clears throat> and we're trying to change the culture in the country around voting and getting involved with, I've spoken to a few of you here tonight who are doing grassroots efforts to get people registered to vote, people who've been naturalized right after the naturalization story uh, ceremony, register them to vote. Here, the sign up there, register to vote. So I think there is a lot that we can do at all of the levels. I mean, our, our effort is to say we have to change the culture so that people appreciate every office has an impact on your life. It matters who's on your city council. It matters who's your state's attorney making prosecutorial decisions. It matters who's your uh, secretary of state determining how we um, orchestrate our elections, how we execute the elections, who's drawing the maps in the state legislature. Every one of them matters. and so. Find a candidate that you care about and get behind that candidate. If you don't have a candidate you care about, get behind registering people to vote. There's something everyone, this does not take a particular skill, unique skill set. You don't need to have gone to business school to get involved in civic participation. You can just get engaged wherever you want. Just do something. Also, now that you've and run um, yourselves. now that you've signed up for this event, you're on our invite list, and we have I can send you a couple events happening this week that you can get involved in. Let's do one more question on this side. Anyone here on the on this side? No, <clears throat> all the way in the back. And the, you are the last audience question. I promised I would get that, the formal portion over by eight o'clock, but you'll be able to spend some time to sign books. So if you want to ask her a question, you can do that then. Just right into the mic. Thank you, and thank you for taking my question and for speaking with us tonight. I've been around for a good number of years and have had the privilege of voting twice for presidents that I believed in, not against the opposition. And both times it was Barack Obama. Um, 
I'm really nervous about what's happened to the truth mm. in our country. And I don't, I see it becoming more and more of a bipartisan issue. And I don't know how we move forward if we don't even know what the truth is. Well, <clears throat> first of all, we do know what the truth is. And I think what's particularly troubling to me about the current state is the Republicans know what the truth is too. They just made the calculus, the short-term political calculus, that they have to kind of go along with uh, the president in order to preserve their seat, in order to make sure the people, that the judges they want to put in office are put in, in positions of power to make sure that they stack the courts so that they can reverse Roe versus Wade. I mean, they have a very clear agenda but it isn't about truth, really. I mean, it's not important to them that the truth isn't told. And the only way we combat that is to hold them accountable. And the only way we hold them accountable is to elect them out of office. And it's really just that simple, because I, I now know them. They will do whatever they think is in their political interest. And if enough people vote in their states, they will lose. And we just have to get more people out to vote than they do. And we have to, we have to also <clears throat> recognize that you cannot let perfect be the enemy of the good. Vice President Biden used to have a saying, he's like, don't compare me to the almighty, compare me to the alternative. And it actually, it, it kind of fits here. It's like, I will take anybody in the democratic field, any one of them, would be so much better, in my opinion, than what we have right now. And I think we can't allow what happened last time to happen again, to be really honest with you. We can't get so attached to our candidate that if our candidate loses, we don't get out there and work for whoever is the nominee. And that person's not gonna be perfect, I promise you, whoever it is. Barack Obama, bless his heart, it's not perfect. Or, or friendly fire during the primary, that whatever we say in the primary will be written during, as a commercial during the general election. And we, we, that doesn't mean we shouldn't have spirited debates about policy, but let's be smart about this and let's recognize what's really at stake. So I'm nervous too, I'm very scared. I'm scareder than I've been in a long time. I just became a grandmother. We haven't talked about that yet. I can't believe I let an hour go by without mentioning my four and a half month old grandson, but I see the world differently now. I drew, I really do through you know, the world that he's going to grow up in. And I'm scared for him. And I don't want to have to be scared for him. I want to think that his chances as a brown baby are going to be better than my daughter's were and better than my father's were. And no, I don't know. I don't know. Valid. I do, But I do know one thing. You guys can make a difference. And I really... You were going to say something. I was going to ask you a final question before oh, you wrap. Okay. Well, I, I wanted uh, to end on one last question, uh, which brings us to the book. We've been talking about the book. Let's get back to the book. The book is called Finding My Voice, and you, you tied it in really nicely at the end by talking about, and some of you may not know this, but you, for a long time, were very shy, and you actually had a problem talking in front of large groups of people. Hard to and, believe, isn't and you it? You were a shy person, and at the end of the book, you talk about how working so closely with President Obama changed you, and one of the things it did was it taught you how to find your voice. So I thought it would be appropriate to end tonight with the question of, um, you know, not all of us will have the opportunity to live the life that you've had and be able to be in the rooms and have the jeweled 
briefcases and that I didn't get to keep flying to they didn't get to keep flying to Dharamsala to deliver a letter to the Dalai Lama um, and and I'm sure you didn't need that to find your voice but for those of us who won't have that and it'll be most of us what is your advice to help people f- how can someone find their voice this is the perfect note to end on because I'm going to embarrass you I'm going to talk about you no 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 don't no I am and I. I'll tell you why. Okay, so what, what month did you open? I, we opened on election night, uh, 2018, November 6th. So November 6th, 2018. And how many events do you have here a year? Well, we've only had one year, but it was 453, something like that. And before you were doing this, what was here? A sushi restaurant. So <clears throat> you went from a sushi restaurant to having more than one event, sometimes four events a day, because you had a vision and you did something. And there is no reason why every single person in this room cannot do exactly what you did. And that's what I'm talking about. That's the magic of ordinary people. I'm not calling you ordinary Manny, but ordinary people doing extraordinary things. You just made up your mind that this city needed this center and then you made it happen. And that is the role model by which I think we should all live. You don't have to get jewels from the Dalai Lama to transform people's lives, to create a forum where people can get engaged and participate, and that, and that that is really where change happens. Change happens in uh, centers like this all over the country. This is where the magic begins. And when you leave here tonight, you have choices to make. And I guess part of finding your voice that I describe in the book is just trying to be a purposeful life. And that doesn't mean that you have to go do grand things. It just means you all have talents, you all have skills, you all have passions. Own them. Own them and listen to the most important voice, and that's the quiet one inside of you. And say, when you're trying to figure out what to do to get involved in an election, well, what speaks to you? Who speaks to you? Go do that. But do something. We can't just rest on our laurels. If we haven't learned anything else in the last three years, we've learned how fragile our democracy can be when we, when we kind of burst through social norms and the rule of law, and one person can make a huge difference, um, and one person can also make a huge difference as a force for good. And so be that force for good. Change the world. Manny? Valerie Jarrett, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>